Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. such a privilege to have you here. A couple of quick things to remind you of. Of course, next Sunday is Back to Church Sunday. I want to encourage you to grab folks who haven't been in a while to call them up to remind them that church is a worthwhile piece of the Christian life and that uh, everyone should be engaged, especially if you proclaim the name of Christ as Lord of your life. So I just want to encourage you to encourage others. Grab a few extra folks. Let's see if we can fill in more of the seats. Um, and, and really be crowded next Sunday. I'll make sure the AC is working or the heat if it's, you know, who knows which we'll need, right, this time of year. But uh, let, let's see if we can crowd this place out and, and really honor God by coming back to one of the things that he counts as important for us as believers. We've been commanded uh, throughout Scripture to continue gathering together, to make fellowship uh, an intimate part of who we are as believers. And so... While we are never going to, you know, be legalistic and say you have to come to church to be saved, we will say, if you are saved, you should always want to be at church, because this should be a critical part of your walk with Jesus Christ. Second big thing is in two weeks, we will begin our Sunday Bible school, 937 to 1030, and it's going to have offerings for every age group. I'm excited for the kids to get to spend every Sunday with the same teachers, loving on them, teaching them. We've got some great new teachers who are bringing some fresh blood. We've got some old veterans who uh, we're excited are still going to be engaged. And we've also got opportunities for all of the adults in the church. So I'll be teaching the Baptist faith and message as we go through doctrine and learning about the nature of God and, and the Trinity and what we as Baptists believe in any number of areas related to how we participate in both church life and the world. Uh, Elder Steve, he'll be teaching on the Bible. I can't remember which book of the Bible you're doing. Galatians, uh, which is a good one. It'll blow your mind. Galatians, good stuff. And then Shelly will be teaching a class for you ladies in the women's ministry room that is focused on the women of the Bible, the the ones who have done great things by the power of the Spirit within them. And uh, hopefully it'll be inspiring to you to live out your life in the fullness that God has desired for you. So I'm excited about Sunday Bible School. I hope you can catch it too, because I believe it's an opportunity. Parents, if you faithfully bring your children, they will be faithfully discipled by someone who loves them and will reinforce the truths that you're trying to instill in them at home. Adults, it's your opportunity to get out of your spiritual doldrums and engage in ways maybe you don't or haven't previously So I encourage everyone, all age groups, to join us for Sunday Bible School in two weeks from today. 9.37, right? That ought to stick in your head. 9.37. It's a weird time. Why 9.37? Because it was the compromise, like I mentioned, between 9.30, which half of you said was too early, and 9.45, which half of you said was too late. So 9.37, on the nose, we're going to get started in two weeks in our Sunday Bible School. This Sunday, we'll conclude our look in the book of Habakkuk. Next Sunday, for Back to Church Sunday, 
five best reasons to, to attend church we're going to talk about. I'm going to release a short video in the middle of the week this week, the five worst reasons to come to church. I want to encourage you to check that out on Facebook and YouTube when it's uploaded later this week, and maybe even share it with some friends that you're considering inviting, and remind them that there are some really bad reasons to come to church, and we're going to see those in the short video, but then there are five great reasons to come to church faithfully throughout the year, and we're going to figure those out and discern those next Sunday in the sermon. But today, we are finishing up this beautiful three-chapter book of the prophet Habakkuk, and we're going to be doing the entirety of Habakkuk chapter three as we wrap up. So we could go until three or four in the afternoon here if uh, it, it gets too in-depth. I promise not to do that, but just a quick reminder, I love to review every week just to bring us back up to speed, especially if you haven't been with us every week, to remind you how we got to where we are. The thing about God's word is it's always applicable. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 tells us that all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the believer might be completely equipped for every good work in their life. And so the book of Habakkuk, this prophecy of Habakkuk, while it feels old and disconnected, it is useful for us. And, and remember, as we dug deeper, we can see just how it can hit home for us as believers. Because in Habakkuk's day, where Habakkuk lived, his world, it was the, in the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of, of uh, the people of God, and they were the good kingdom, but by the time Habakkuk comes around, they had had almost a hundred years of evil kings, and they had been worshiping false gods, they had been practicing witchcraft, they had been participating in child sacrifice, and there was injustice, and they had rejected God's laws. They were trusting Egypt to keep them safe, and they were trusting in the power of government and chariots over the power of God, and there was rampant killing of the innocent in his day, and so Habakkuk has this encounter with God. Remember, chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that Habakkuk actually saw these things and experienced them. And so this is not some sort of musing of the prophet. He wasn't sitting and saying, I think God would say this. But he is actually having an encounter with the Almighty God, and it's recorded for us to apply to our life. Now remember the circumstance. In this evil culture, Habakkuk, this follower of God, this faithful Jew... He says to God, God, why are things so bad, and why haven't you come and fixed them? And then God answers Habakkuk and says, I've, I've been at work. I want you to look around. I want you to be amazed because I'm about to do something in you and your people. Look, I am raising up this terrible kingdom, the Chaldeans, and they're going to come destroy all the wickedness that you have trouble with. And this is God's answer. And and." Then God tells Habakkuk, after he complains a little bit more, that it is the righteous person that will live by faith, by trusting in God, even as punishment comes, even as destruction is visited upon injustice. It is the righteous person who trusts in God and walks in his way that will be saved. And the evil, the unjust, the unjust, they will be destroyed talks about wine betrays an arrogant man is never at rest they have appetites like like hell like death they're never satisfied the the unjust the unrighteous they they gather things to themselves they collect people 
for themselves. They want to be powerful and in charge and in control. That's how God describes them. And then God says, this is going to happen. Won't all of these, all of the people who have been oppressed, all of the righteous, they're going to eventually have this opportunity to taunt the unjust and the unrighteous, to mock them, to create riddles about them. And we saw last week the five woes and how God is going to visit upon the unjust consequences in line with their sinfulness. The, the concept of sowing a seed and reaping a harvest. When you sow injustice, you will reap consequences. When you sow false gods, you will reap despair. When you sow greed, you will reap utter loss. And so we see that God is at work. And then at the very end of chapter 2, we're left with this final statement. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent in his presence. And so the end of chapter 2 in this encounter with God, in which he tells Habakkuk the unjust will ultimately be completely judged and wiped out in accordance with their sinfulness, then we're left with this moment of be quiet before God because he is in control. He is sovereign. He is holy. And your only response in that moment is to be silent before him. And so chapter 3 picks up and it's called Habakkuk's final song of praise or his final prayer. And we're going to read it first. And I want you, as I read it, just to listen. Maybe even close your eyes. If you want to follow along in your Bible, that's fine. We're going to go over every verse again in a little more detail. But I want you to hear it all at once. I want you to experience it. Because we'll go into more detail here in a moment. But this is actually a worship song. This is a worship song that Habakkuk has penned it's a, it's a prayer, but it's also a, a way of lifting up God and expressing a trust in God. And just like as we sang the great songs this morning, you might close your eyes and, and raise your hand and, in thankfulness to the words that are being sung. You might close your eyes and listen to what Habakkuk says here in this song of praise and, and just feel it before we take the time to know it. So here we are, Habakkuk chapter 3, and here's where it starts in verse 1. A prayer of the prophet Habakkuk, according to Shigenoth. Lord, I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. God comes from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, his splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. His brilliance is like light. Rays are flashing from his hand. This is where his power is hidden. Plague goes before him, and pestilence follows in his steps. He stands and shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nations. The age-old mountains break apart. The ancient hills sink down. His pathways are ancient. I see the tents of Kishon in distress and the tents of Midian, excuse me, the tent curtains of the land of Midian tremble. Are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers? Or is your fury against the sea when you ride on your chariot, horses 
your victorious chariot. You took the sheath from your bow. The arrows are ready to be used with an oath. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains see you and shudder. A downpour of water sweeps by. The deep roars with its voice and lifts its waves high. Sun and moon stand still in their lofty residence at the flash of your flying arrows, at the brightness of your shining spear. You march across the earth with indignation. You trample down the nations in wrath. You come out to save your people, to save your anointed. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him from foot to neck. You pierce his head with his own spears. His warriors storm out to scatter us, gloating as if ready to secretly devour the weak. You tread the sea with your horses, stirring up the vast water. I heard, and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. So here we have this whole chapter 3, this beautiful song. And now we're going to dive in a little bit. Now that we've felt it, hopefully, a little, we'll try and understand it a little bit more. So here in chapter 3, verse 1, it begins with this, a prayer of the prophet Habakkuk according to Shigayanath. I This is another one of those words that, you know, you just say it with confidence. No one will be able to say you're wrong. So uh, you know, and, uh, wow, you, you speak Hebrew so well, right? But um, here's the deal is we get this verse, the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, and, and then at the end of the chapter, chapter 3, verse 19, the last little bit that I didn't read, but is part of the, the passage, it says this, for the choir director on stringed instruments. So you might be wondering, so what does that mean? What, what are these words and what, what's going on here? Well, what's really interesting about this is this is written at, to be a psalm. And you might then wonder, well, why isn't it in the book of Psalms? Because that's where all the psalms are, right? Well, remember, if we go back to the study we did on psalms quite some time ago, the, the word psalm is not necessarily just about that one book it is a term that means song essentially so the book of psalms is the the hymnal of the old testament and yet we find psalms kind of sprinkled throughout the old testament and and some short little songs of praise in the new as well and so we know this is a psalm because of the notations that are in the text so it begins with that in verse 1, that Shigianoth, that is a musical style. We believe it was a musical style. And it, it seems like it, it's probably in reference to music that kind of reels to and fro. It's just kind of like, it, it just makes you kind of want to sway, maybe. Music that really is deep and meaningful. 
Uh, it could be that it's a, a funeral dirge. It's really hard. Uh, some of these words in Hebrew, their exact meaning has been lost. And so linguists and researchers try and discern what it means by looking at other similar words. But we do see very clearly there at the end of this chapter, verse 19b, uh, we see that there are musical instructions. That this is, was written for the choir master, and it was supposed to be used or, or sung along with stringed instruments. So you can see there's, you know, like guitar solos in here and stuff. Uh, so there's notations throughout on how to play this and how to sing it. You might see in your translation, and in fact you should see, in places like uh, verse 3 and verse 9, and then there's one other here. In verse 13, there is the word selah, S-E-L-A-H. And we know it's a musical notation. We don't know exactly what it means. It could mean pause and be silent. Or it could mean, we think, just an interlude. So like, just imagine if this is for stringed instruments, when you see selah in the text, as, and think of the song being played, it's probably when the guitarist would do the, the, uh, the solo and the power slide across the, the stage there at the temple. Uh, this, is, this is really, you know, where, where it's possible that it was a, a pause for silence or a pause for celebration and, and just rejoicing in the song that they were singing. So we know this is a psalm, and so when we read this, we should read it not as just dry truth, but instead we need to understand some things about it. There is symbolic language, like in other psalms and songs and poetry. And so when we read things in here, it's not necessarily literal, but it is meant to convey to us an emotion or a truth in a representative manner. And, and also, it is meant to be a, an act of celebration, ultimately, to, to read and or sing this passage in Habakkuk. So, this discourse with God, where Habakkuk is really struggling with the evil in the world around him. He's struggling with dealing with God's perfect plans that he doesn't like. All of this, this discourse and struggle ends with a song of celebration, a song of rejoicing, a song that really brings home what Habakkuk has already learned. It's like, you know, when you, when you listen to the behind the music, you know, you watched VH1 back in the day or something, and they explain where the song came from and how it was written. You know, well, we were sitting in the bar together and we saw this dude across and so and we wrote this dude looks like a lady kind of song. So, um, you know, or things like that. That's how songs come about. And so you can see kind of chapters one and two are the behind the music for chapter three. And it explains the, how the song came to be. And now we're going to look a little bit more at the song itself. So here is Habakkuk singing to God. In chapter 3, verse 2, and he says, Lord, I've heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. So he's kind of giving us a clue as to what this song is going to be about. Number one, it's really important. When you read in your Bible the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is representative in nearly every modern translation of God's personal name, Yahweh. And so when you read in your Bible and see those capital letters, Lord, you need to understand that this is a relationship that is intimate. It is one in which 
Habakkuk is calling God by his, his self-proclaimed name. And, and we know this is his name because we go back to Exodus chapter 3, and it's, it's the first time that we really see God declaring who he is without any question or doubt. And he says to Moses, I am who I am. I, I, I am the self-existent one who reveals himself to the people that I love. And, and it is expressed in the name Yahweh, that self-existent God who defines who he is and reveals himself to mankind in love. So it's this really intimate word, name, first name that Habakkuk uses for God. So, Lord, I have heard the report first about you. In other words, I've heard the stories about you. And, Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds or the things that you've done. So throughout the course of this song, just in this first passage, he has already given to us the structure of what he's going to sing about, the things he wants us to remember about God. He wants us to remember, first, God's nature. And so as we go back through these verses, I want you to look for things like this. I want you to look for creator. God as creator in here. I want you to see that in here, God as the sovereign In other words, the ruler, the absolute, unquestioned ruler of all of what he has created. You're going to see in here God as warrior. God as destroyer of of evil and wrongdoing. You're going to see God as savior. He chooses to redeem and save the people he loves and has chosen. I want you to understand in this passage, in in this song, you see God as holy. He is completely set apart. He is different. He is unique amongst all that exists. And so we see his nature reflected in this poem, in this song. But Habakkuk is also going to celebrate God's deeds. And so in his deeds, we're going to see creation rehashed a little bit, some pictures of of bringing order out of chaos. We're going to see pictures that will remind us of the exodus, the, the, the conquest when, when uh, Joshua led the children of Israel into the promised land finally. There are some, some callbacks to that conquest of the promised land. We're going to see judgment and restoration. But above all, we're going to see in God's deeds a justice that can only come from him. Because he alone is truly just. Now, what follows in verses 3 and, um, and on uh, up to verse 16 is what we call a theophany, a theophany. So we believe that what Habakkuk is experiencing is not, he's not just actually sitting back and thinking about nice things about God, but he is literally having a vision, a visible, something he sees in reality, manifestation of God. Now, you might go, well, I've never seen anything like that. Uh, Me either, but man, I'd love to. But what I have seen and what I have experienced of God are changed lives all around me. And I have experienced God in moments of worship in ways that are just overwhelming. I have seen God on the edge of the Grand Canyon. Um, You know, he wasn't like there, there, but man, was he there. And I was scared, and I was overwhelmed. That's what Habakkuk is going to experience in these next few verses. So here is the the story of Habakkuk's experience as recorded in this song. And remember, we're looking for both God's nature 
and God's works to be celebrated here in this psalm. So he says this, God comes from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. So these, these two words are actually interesting and unique because the word God, a lot of us, we will read that and go, okay, so that's, that's just God, right? What's amazing about Hebrew is there are a number of different words for God. And we've actually talked about it in the past. There is, there's El, there's, there's Elohim. Here in, in this one, when Habakkuk says God comes from Taman, he's actually using the word Eloah, and, and it means the God who is creator. And so we see that, that even in a song like this, Habakkuk is hearkening back to the very moment of creation and understanding that God, this one God, is the one who made all of these things possible, both the good and the bad, that this, this whole world was created by him, and he is aware of all of it. And it says that the Holy One, this is a, a word that means to convict and to judge. And so the Creator God is coming from Taman. The one who is to convict and judge is coming from Mount Paran. Now these are both places that geographically would be south of Jerusalem, down into the southern wilderness. And so Habakkuk is saying, I see God coming up out of the wilderness where we experienced him on Mount Sinai, where, where we, we met him and Moses met him face to face and we saw the, the flames and heard the thunder and felt the earthquake at the base of Mount Sinai when he spoke to us. Now I can see him coming up, the very creator God, coming to judge. And then, Selah, or once again, it's either that pause to just kind of ponder, or it's the guitar solo. We're not sure. Either way, it gives you time to kind of ruminate, to kind of chew on this picture of the creator of all that there is coming up out of the, the wilderness, out of the desert to judge. And then here's what Habakkuk goes on to say. He says, his splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. Now this word splendor, this is not just Man, God, you look really good today. Did you do something different with your hair? No. This is, it, it, it literally means his kingly glory or his sovereign authority covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. And so as Habakkuk is, is singing this song and he sees God coming up, he's saying, this God is king, he is sovereign, he is ruler over everything. And the whole world and all of the heavens sing the praises of this one true God who's in charge of all of it. Then he begins to describe God and, and what he sees. His brilliance is like light. Rays are flashing from his hand. This is where his power is hidden. We see similar pictures of God in Isaiah and in Revelation where God just simply dwells in light. First John tells us that, that it is light that describes the very nature of God. And so I, uh, Habakkuk here is, is, is saying, when I look at God, all I see is beauty and brightness and light and goodness and perfection and holiness. 
Now, I want to I encourage you, if you say you're a believer, you've, you've called upon Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you, you say, I walk with God, but you've never had a moment of experiencing the brilliance of God, I want to encourage you to, to find some s- genuine Sabbath time in your life and try and get away and get deep into His Word and enjoy His creation and see if you can't catch a glimpse of His brilliance. Because... This God that we say we worship, that we sing these songs to, that we gather here together to honor and glorify and learn of, He is overwhelmingly beautiful and perfect and just. And so when we come into these moments of doubt and struggle, we can still struggle and yet stand there and go, I hate all of that God, but man, you are amazing. Because we've experienced him fully. If you're one of those people, your faith is all about your, your knowledge and your head. And, and I struggle with this, believe me. My faith is as, as much about having a right core of uh, doctrine as it is about the things I feel. But I want to tell you, let go of that a little bit and try and feel and see and experience God. Now those of you who are more emotional and you see him everywhere, you are so lucky. I wish I was like you some days. Of course, your doctrine's messed up. So, it's time for you to learn from us who are the intellects, right? Now, but you get what, we can, we can fall in either extreme. But all of us should long to know God, to make Him known, to really see the beauty of who He is and see Him in all His splendor. Habakkuk describes it further. He says this, He says, plague goes before him, and pestilence follows in his steps. Now we might think, this is a really weird way to describe God, wouldn't we? This isn't the God I know. Wait a minute, how can this be the God that that I love? How can this be the God who's holy and perfect? But remember, why is this God coming up from the south? To bring justice. He's coming up to show that he is in control to show that he is the God of creation who is holy and perfect and has expectations for man. And that if man continues in rebellion, they will be judged, and that judgment will be plagues and pestilence. And we can look around today, just like and turn on the news and current events and go, oh yeah, I see that. God must be coming on the scene. I see some plague coming before him. I bet there's some pestilence coming in his steps. Judgment comes from the holy God. And it comes in accordance with the sin of mankind as we have rejected him. Plague and pestilence are part of that judgment. Verse 6 says this, He stands and shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nations. The age-old mountains break apart. The ancient hills sink down. His pathways are ancient. When we look around and we think about the mountains, we think about the hills, we think about the nations, we think of of things that seem immovable, that seem secure, that seem like they will last forever. And Habakkuk says that, that just God's mere presence brings earthquakes, that his mere presence drives the nations to fear. As they look at his holiness, they understand the judgment that is coming. And Habakkuk says these very things that you think are stable, 
and will last forever like mountains and hills will be broken apart and will sink down as the all-powerful creator comes to judge. But his pathways, his way of life, his goodness, his grace, his mercy, his attributes, and his works, they are ancient and everlasting. Understand the things that we lean on, the things that we think bring us stability and constancy in life will crumble when God comes to judge. Revelation talks about when one of the seals are broken, the sixth seal is broken and and the sun uh, disappears, it goes dark, the moon turns to sackcloth and blood red. And, and it, 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 it's detailed there in Revelation that all the wise and powerful people of the world, all the great leaders, cry out to the mountains, please fall down and destroy us. Cover us up and hide us from the wrath of God that is coming. The very people and things that we think will bring stability are the things that will be destroyed and proven to be powerless when God comes to judge. So this this should bring to mind the things that we're building our lives on, the things that we're trusting in, the things that we think will keep us safe from judgment, from God's wrath. They will crumble and fall, but He will remain forever. He goes on to see the, uh, say this, I see the tents of Kushan in distress, the tent curtains of the land of Midian tremble. This is just a description of how God is coming up from the south, and as he does so, these tent dwellers who are in the southern regions of the area of Israel, they see his presence and they quake as they experience him. They are in fear and distress because of the presence of God. What's just amazing about when God shows up on the scene, we either fall down in awe and love and rejoice, or we will be scared to death knowing that judgment is coming. There's no in-between. It is rejoice or recoil when you experience the presence of God. Verse 8. Are you angry at the waters, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers? Or is your fury against the sea when you ride on your horses, your victorious chariot? What's interesting is I read about six different commentaries in preparation for this message because I read this verse and went, I, what? And guess what? Half of them said God was angry at rivers and the sea because they were representative of chaos, which is true. When we look in the Old Testament, all throughout, when chaos and evil are representative, and even in the New Testament, we see rivers and seas are symbolic pictures of chaos and evil. And so rivers or sea could represent the chaos, the evil of mankind, and is God angry at them? Yes. Is he pouring out his wrath against the chaos of sin? And rebellion, absolutely. And then some say, no, he's not angry at the rivers or the seas. He's actually angry at the people who are committing sin. And the rivers and the seas happen to be the means by which he expresses his wrath. 
So you sit and go, well, hmm, is he angry at the rivers and seas? The answer is, it doesn't matter. Because the truth is, whether you interpret it one way or the other, you still land on the very same truth. God's angry at sin and rebellion. His anger is against those who perpetrate unrighteousness, who stand up against his clear and loving commands and say, no, we're going to do it our own way. God's anger and wrath are clearly directed against an evil and rebellious mankind. And so, is he angry at the rivers and the seas? Some say yes, and they're symbolic of man's evil, and some say no because he's actually angry at evil men. So it doesn't matter. The truth is, God hates sin. God is angry at a sinful mankind, and they all, and us among them, deserve his wrath. Thankfully, you and I, if we proclaim the name of Christ, we've chosen him as our Lord and Savior, we understand that God loved us so much that he wanted to save us from the impending doom of his wrath, that he sent his son Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, who walked the earth sinless and perfect and then gave his life as a sacrifice on the cross to pay the price for your sins and mine, to absorb the wrath of the Father, to take upon himself the fullness of God's wrath that we rightfully deserve for our rebellion. And then he rose again on the third day to prove that everything he said about himself is true, to prove that he is our Savior, he is our Lord, and that anyone who would believe on him and confess him as Lord will be saved from their own sin and the wrath that they rightfully deserve. But if you do not receive Christ, you will be measured among those who will receive the fullness of God's wrath in the day of judgment. Verse 9. You took the sheath from your bow. The arrows are ready to be used with an oath. Selah. This pause right here brings us to a point where we, we are ending the idea of God coming in by his very nature and his, his character to come in and judge wrongdoing. And he will be taking from, from his sheath its bow and he's got arrows that he is speaking to and telling exactly where he wants them to lie, or to fly and to land. And so he will exactly bring judgment and punishment upon all those who deserve it. And then we pause and ponder this creator God, sovereign of all, who is coming in judgment. And then he goes on to say, you split the earth with rivers. He begins to talk about the, the works of God. The mountains see you and shudder. A downpour of water sweeps by. The deep roars with its voice and lifts its waves high. All of these amazing and powerful things have been created by a God who is even more amazing and even more powerful. Sun and moon stand still in their lofty residence at the flash of your flying arrows, at the brightness of your shining spear. We have this picture of, of the, the sun and the moon, the most amazing things that we see in the sky, the dominant powers of both the day and the night being absolutely subject to the power 
of our mighty God. And it says that they, they stand still as a response to the flash of his arrows and the brightness of his spear. That they're, they're shamed to simply stand still in the sky because the brilliance of God is so much greater. The brilliance of his works is so much greater. Now, I will tell you, I don't think God has a literal arrow, right? Remember, this is a song. This is symbolic. This is a picture of God's judgment, a picture of God's wrath. And at his wrath, at his judgment, his holiness will shine so brightly that even the sun and moon will stand still and be shamed because of their dullness. You march across the earth with indignation. You trample down the nations in your wrath. We see those, those two words, indignation and wrath. And, and other translations are, them, are uh, this. You march across the earth with anger. You trample down the nations in fury. This is a God who is coming to bring vengeance upon the wicked and unjust. This is what Habakkuk's Habakkuk is experiencing, he's seeing and, and, and experiencing God doing this, this beautiful vision, this terrifying vision of God bringing justice to a world that deserves it. Next, Habakkuk says, you come out to save your people, to save your anointed. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him from foot to neck, that God's role is to come and to save. Now, this word to save, it's in, in italics here. The, the, the word in Hebrew there, it's related to the word Yeshua. Anybody familiar with that word? It's the Hebrew name of Jesus. And so the, the word here, Yesa, it, it is about salvation. And it, it's, it gives us this, this hearkening forward to the time of the Savior who will come and God will save His people through the work of Christ on the cross. You come out to save your people, to save your anointed. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him from foot to neck. This is a promise that, that we can see being fulfilled here in the lives of, of the Chaldeans and the, the, the kingdom of Judah, but also it, it's fulfilled in Christ as He crushes the serpent from the the Garden of Eden destroys Satan. There is this picture of absolute and abject humiliation and destruction for the wicked one. You pierce his head with his own spears. When your head is pierced, we're not talking about those weird piercings like, you know, in weird places where people get little devil horns screwed into their skull or something like. No, we're talking about death. God will utterly destroy and end the wicked one's and, and even as we feel like his warriors are storming out to scatter us, they're gloating as if they're ready to secretly devour, God will be treading the sea with his horses and stirring up the vast waters and bringing final and total destruction upon the wicked ones. And so this is the picture that Habakkuk sees of God. This is the, the theophany, this, this manifestation he sees of God's presence as, as God comes up from the south, from, from the desert of Sinai and Mount Sinai where the Israelites had experienced his presence. He comes up and everyone he encounters, he begins to judge the unjust. He begins to pour out his wrath. The mountains are destroyed. The people tremble and hide. 
The sun and the moon, in response to his glory, stand still and are shamed. And the wicked ones are utterly destroyed because God has come to save his people. But even in coming to destroy and coming to save, there is no promise of a rosy life. In fact, this judgment brings with it difficulties and harm even for the chosen ones he's saving. Because Habakkuk kind of turns a corner in verse 16 because he understands something about what he's just experienced. I heard and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. You see, this experience he's had, he understands this is not a happy thing, even as he rejoices in it, even as he celebrates what God is going to do and the beauty of God and the justice that will be rained down upon the earth. He also understands that this is a big day and it will have dire consequences for himself. And so he stands and he feels weak. He feels scared. He has no words to say. He feels like his very bones are crumbling inside his body as he understands what is coming, the judgment and the wrath. And he says this, Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. I understand what's coming. I understand what's on tap for the wicked I understand it will be beautiful and amazing, but I also understand that it will have consequences for me as I watch it unfold. And all I can do is to sit and wait quietly for God to bring his justice. For God to make things ultimately right. As we all will experience difficulties and trials and troubles in the midst of his making things right. Then he says this, though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, yet I will celebrate in my Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Now verse 17 there, though the fig tree as it begins there, we could kind of put it in modern context for us really quickly. Though the grocery store shelves are empty, though there is no gas at the gas station, though the things that I love and crave are taken from me and are unavailable, though the electricity won't work and there is no natural gas flowing through the pipes and my water isn't working like it should. Though I've lost my job and my car won't start. Though I am persecuted and shamed for my faith or my choices in light of my faith. Even though my whole life and my whole culture and everything that I think is important is lost and crumbles. Even though all that happens, yet... I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Now notice what he is not celebrating. 
I am not celebrating. It doesn't say I will celebrate the fact that the sun came up again and that I get another day of life. No. He doesn't say I celebrate the, this, this little bit of food that you gave me, God, that's just enough to get me through the day. There's not even the promise of that. He says the thing that will keep him going, even as the whole world crumbles and he waits for the justice of God to be poured out on this world, the thing that will keep him going is God himself. Not the blessings that we take for granted. Not, not the, the good things, but just his relationship with God and the very nature and person of God. That's what will keep him going. When everything else crumbles, guys, all we have is our God. And he is enough. And not enough to sit around and just kind of go, well, I guess we'll make it. But instead to celebrate. What a perspective, right? To, to get to the point where you have lost everything, but you are still God's, and He is still yours. And you don't just go, I guess we'll make it, but instead go, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I've got something to celebrate. Which is why I encourage you, if you've never seen the brightness of God, to set some Sabbath time apart and seek His face. He is worth celebrating when you know who He really is. But if he's just a, a thing in your head, just a concept, you will let go of him when things like this happen. When these days come, he will not mean anything to you if you don't know him for real. But when you do, you will celebrate him. When you do know him, you will rejoice in the God of your salvation. And now, see this, when we're talking about celebration in the God of your salvation, rejoicing in the God of your salvation. It's so personal. This is my God. He's the God of my salvation. And that is so important that you understand that. His love for you. His desire to save you. And for you to grab a hold of Him and say, this is my God. The God who's given me my salvation. A sure thing. Not because I'm good enough or I've worked hard enough, but because He is God, and I trust Him. I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Salvation is this beautiful thing. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are saved. It is a sure thing that happened in the past. It is irrevocable. It is undeniable. You are in the hand of God and nothing and no one can snatch you from his hand. Salvation is a past event. It is a present experience. The very things that you are in bondage to today, you can be freed from and saved from by the power of God in your life. And salvation is a future promise that one day we will be fully and completely saved we will see Jesus face to face. We will know him as we are known. And we will have a new body and a new heaven and a new earth to go romping around on and celebrating him and rejoicing in his presence in everything that we do. And so Habakkuk is calling us to begin to practice what is going to be sure in our future. Begin today to celebrate God's presence. Begin today to rejoice in your salvation because if you genuinely are saved, you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, 
That's what your future is. Celebrate what's ahead, even as you struggle in what's now. And then he says this last little bit. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. Now, you, you can't really see it, and I forgot to really highlight it, but in, in the background, and it's kind of hard on this screen, it's a little easier on the TV, on your notes, you can see it a little better. The, the background for this, this whole time, has been a goat on the side of a cliff. A goat on the side of a cliff. And it's this, this picture that is this stupid little goat walking in a place that none of us would walk. And yet it survives because God made it for that. God created it for that. And when we're talking about the bad times, the mountains, the cliffs, the struggles, the traumas, he will make us like that same deer, that same goat, that same bighorn sheep that walks in terrible places that are destitute and full of fear. And yet he makes it possible for us to walk through those troubles. Now I want you to understand, Habakkuk doesn't end in a place like Psalm 23. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. He leads me to green pastures and still waters. He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil. Life is sweet and good. Habakkuk says, that's not where we're going when we get to this day of judgment. That's not where we will necessarily live, Christians. Instead, in days of trouble and trauma, it's more likely we will be like deer living on the cliff, scraping by on whatever will grow out of the craggy rocks and trusting in the power of God to give us sure feet. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. He gives me the strength to walk through bitter, difficult, painful, and terrible places to his glory and my good. And then it ends, of course, for the choir director on stringed instruments. We should be singing this song to God of rejoicing and trust. Now, as we get to the end of Habakkuk, and we've experienced this beautiful psalm, I just want to encourage you to kind of rehash in your mind and to think about some of the lessons we can learn from Habakkuk. Number one, I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do something that sounds weird but is entirely scriptural. I want you to doubt faithfully. Some of us have been raised up to think that to ever doubt God or doubt our faith or doubt anything about spirituality is to be in rebellion and sin. But what Habakkuk teaches us clearly is that God is not afraid of our doubts and our, our, our struggles. He's not afraid of our questions. In fact, we can call out to God and say, I don't get what you're doing. I thought you were better than this, which is exactly what Habakkuk does. But he doesn't ever reject God. He doesn't ever walk away from God. He doesn't ever say, I don't understand, so you must not be God. Instead, he says, I know you're God, but I don't understand. Would you please give me some clarity? I want you to learn 
to follow the example of Habakkuk and to doubt with faith. To doubt filled with faith. In other words, to, to be able to say to God, I don't get it. Why is it like this? But I trust you all the same. This seems stupid and hypocritical, God. But I know you have the answer. Doubt faithfully. But in doubting faithfully, it means that you will have to faithfully listen when God speaks. And when God says something to your heart, or he says it through scripture, or he says it through a trusted believer that you don't like the answer, you don't go, well, that can't be right because I don't like that answer. Instead, you're willing to say, all right, thanks for answering my doubts, Lord. Guess what? You can still say, but that stinks. However, I trust you. Do you see that in Habakkuk with me? Do you see this journey where Habakkuk says, why is it like this? And God answers him, and he answers back, Habakkuk answers back to God, but, but that stinks, and it's stupid, God. And God answers back to Habakkuk. And then Habakkuk ends in this moment of praise. You're right, God. I got no other answer than to trust you. Third, I want to encourage you to live by faith. The first step in this era of biblical faith is to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you have never understood the gospel and your need for salvation from sin and the wrath of God, and you've never trusted on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the first step for you to live by faith is to trust Him as your Lord. If you have questions about that, we, I don't like to do emotional um, like invitations. You know, Let's do just as I am for half an hour until somebody comes up. But instead, I want you to turn to somebody you love and trust that you know follows Christ and say, what must I do to be saved? What do I need to do to follow Jesus like you do? What do I have to understand to know that I'm saved. I want you to talk to your brothers and sisters or, or those people who brought you. That's the first choice. Those of you who's made professions of faith, I want to encourage you to, when you read God's standards in His Word, you don't consider them to be negotiable or flexible standards. Well, but what about... No. <laughs> when God says, don't forsake the gathering together... He means, don't forsake the gathering together of other believers. That's what he means. There's no flexibility there. When, when God says, don't be drunk with wine, it's what he means. Now, will we fall short? Will we fail? Yes, from time to time, of course. But we should not treat God's word as negotiable. To live by faith is to take what God says and apply it to our lives. And then finally, when God's word doesn't speak clearly on something, to live by faith means to live by the prompting of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Just read a survey. Majority of Christians in the United States don't believe the Holy Spirit is real. So let me tell you something about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is co-equal with the Father and the Son. Each of the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are completely God and yet unique persons? Do you understand that? Probably not. Do you know why? Because I don't get it. And we can all go all the way back to some of the greatest thinkers of Christianity, and all we can do is take God's word for it, because it's what the word clearly teaches. Does it make perfect sense? No. Are there three gods? 
by no means. There is one God expressed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Is it one God divided up into three parts? No, each of them are completely God. Do they have unique roles? Yes, interestingly enough. The Trinity is difficult. The Holy Spirit is real. If you will listen for His voice, when the Word does not speak clearly, He will give you clear direction. Fourth, I want to encourage you to trust God's character and witness. When it seems like things are wrong, trust in the sovereignty of God. Trust in the holiness of God. Trust in His justice. His justice is never late, but it doesn't always come in the time frames that we would like. His mercy is never misapplied. It is always given to those whom God has desired to give it to. His holiness is not tainted. It is perfect, and we are to seek to live like it. I want to encourage you to celebrate God. If the only time you pray or celebrate God or thank Him for who He is is on Sunday morning, you're not quite doing it right. Learn how to create moments of Sabbath in your life where you do what God told Habakkuk to do. Sit quietly because I'm in my temple. Sit quietly and listen. I want to encourage you to rejoice in your salvation in Christ. So many times we don't remember what we've been saved from. We don't remember the terrible people we used to be and sometimes still are. And how Jesus saved us from all of that when we made that profession of faith in Him. Finally, I want to encourage you to find your strength in Him alone. Now, that's a challenging one, I realize. I tend to find my strength in smoked meats, you know, and, and um, carbohydrates. These are the things that I like to find my strength in. Um, but we have to learn as Christians government will fail us. <laughs> Some of them, amen! Uh, others of you are not so convinced yet. Just wait a week or two. <laughs> Governments will fail us. Leaders will fail us. I, sadly, and, and some of you have experienced this firsthand in the last few days, pastors can fail us. Spouses can fail us. Children can fail us. Everything, right? You get it? The mountains, Scripture tells us, will fail us. The seas will betray us. The sun and moon will rain down upon us. Stars from the sky. The things we think are stable are not. However, God is. And no matter what rains down or who else falls short, God can be your strength. And I want to encourage you to make this your statement, your prayer, as we move through these coming days and weeks and months of uncertainty in our lives. Even when it all crumbles away, even when it all falls down, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. Would you pray with me as the worship team comes up and prepares to close us out?
Holy Father God, precious Son, powerful Spirit, we pray to you today, three in one, a perfect God who is both holy and just and merciful, who dwells in splendor and yet also resides deep within us. We lift up to you today our fears, our concerns, our struggles. We declare to you that sometimes this world feels unjust, it feels unrighteous, it feels unfair, and we would like for you to fix things. But we also trust your hand. We trust your plan. We believe in your power and righteousness, and we know that justice will come, and in it, mercy will be shown as well. And so today, may it become who we are that even when all of this falls apart, even when everything falls down, we can declare with Habakkuk, we will celebrate you, Lord. We will rejoice in you, Christ, the Lord of our salvation. And we will trust that you, our God, our personal Savior, the one who loves us as individuals and as a church, that you will give us strength and make it possible for us to walk in places and through circumstances that seem impossible. Thank you for being so good to us. Thank you for giving us the teaching of Habakkuk. Thank you for showing us what happened to lead up to this beautiful song. And may this song become ours as we trust in you. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's celebrate the Lord and rejoice in the God of our salvation with our last song of the morning. Shoulders, Jack. 
King, who is both just and merciful. And so I want to encourage you to seek his face, to trust in his provision, to not be afraid of the things that happen all around us, but instead know that he is worth celebrating. His salvation is worth remembering, and he will make us all to walk like deer upon the heights through times of trial and trouble and fear. He will make it possible. God bless. Have a great week. Look forward to seeing many of you in small groups throughout the week. We do have Monday night study, Wednesday night ladies, Thursday night students, and then uh, next Sunday morning, of course, Sunday school, and 1829 is Friday night. So put it on your calendar, 18 to 29-year-olds, and join us. It's a good time every time. So God bless you guys. Have a great week. If you've got any questions or need any help with your spiritual walk, don't be afraid to ask.